If you would again, take out your Bibles and let's turn to Genesis chapter 41. And we will be looking at uh, the entire chapter. It's been a couple of weeks um, since we looked at um, Genesis. You might recall that uh, in chapter 40, uh, we had seen the uh, dreams of the cupbearer and the baker and the interpretation which Joseph had made. And so this picks up uh, the narrative where we had last uh, left it. So Genesis uh, chapter 41, uh, this is God's holy, inspired and in their word, pay careful attention to the reading of it. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the green grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven years of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them spouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry, and his servants put me and the chief baker in custody, In the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one could have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered thin and blighted by the east wind sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. 
The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind will also be seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout the land of Egypt, but after them there will rise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand, and put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain around his neck. They made him ride in the second chariot, and they called out before him, Bow the knee! Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath paneah and he gave him in marriage Asnath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt. And he put the food in cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until it ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Azanath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore, him, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and my father's house. The name of the second was called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was famine in all the land. But in all the land of Egypt there was bread. Then all the land of Egypt was famished. The people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened up all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. For the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt. 
to Joseph to buy grain, because the, fa- the famine was severe over all the earth. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our God remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this reading of your word. And even as we read it, we are amazed. We're amazed by the transformation which occurs in Joseph's life. We're we're thankful that um, as we can see your providence at work, that you were preparing for this, this moment. That you are in control of all things. We thank you, God, for your sovereignty, for your, for your care and love for your people. Give us ears now to hear. Help us, O oh God, to learn from this word and to apply it to our lives. That Jesus is glorified. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. <clears throat> Amen. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ is the horn of salvation which was raised to rescue the people of God from their sin. Jesus was wickedly oppressed. He endured the hostility of sinners and the shame of the cross so that you and I might be made free and have life in Him. Now suffering, beloved congregation, as you well know, is, common, is a common human experience. And this is an experience in which our Savior also participated. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we yet without sin. Beloved, we are weak. And where we are weak, Jesus is strong. Where you and I can no longer endure, where we buckle under the pressures of sin and we fall short of God's glory and we recognize that we need rescue. We need salvation. We need help. God the Father sent God the Son to accomplish what you and I could never do. And Jesus suffered on your behalf. The humiliated, suffering servant was brought low. He took on flesh. He died on the cross. But in the end, Jesus is highly exalted having made peace between God and men and being raised up from the dead. And our Savior Jesus even now is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The Son of God was humiliated and exalted. Now this theological reality, the theological reality of the humiliation and exaltation of our Savior Jesus is in type and shadow played out in the life of the servant of God, Joseph. Joseph himself was brought low, and Joseph was used of God to bring the people of Egypt and even that of Israel a temporal salvation, salvation from hunger, not an ultimate salvation, of course. They were starving because of the famine. Joseph was raised up to deal with that. Joseph, having been brought low as a prisoner, then sets the stage for God's good providence. 
His being raised up that He might temporally save the nation of Israel. Now, really, ultimately, He's uh, bringing, bringing the salvation, saving Israel, allows Israel to, you know, to continue to flourish as a nation. They don't, they don't die off. So this is all part of God's plan of salvation in an ultimate sense, in Christ coming as well. And so the scene has been set. It's in, we're in the palace of Pharaoh. Two years have gone by since the events of chapter 40, where Joseph had in, interpreted the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker. And remember that Joseph had asked the cupbearer to remember him, but he had forgotten him. Joseph had been forgotten and continued to suffer and toil in prison. And he did so for two more years. Two years have passed. And we may ask, how difficult would this have been for Joseph? Was he resigned to his situation? We can't really know fully his state of mind, but we may not blame him if he felt some measure of anxiety by his plight. He knows that he was, you know, he was kidnapped, he was sold into slavery, then he becomes a prisoner, he has continued to suffer all these years, and you know why? He doesn't know why. Well, of course, we know the rest of the story. We know why, but where is he at in this, at this point? Well, the worry of his, of his situation would have been natural, even for a man of great faith. He was, after all, a man like you and me, weak, and yet needing the strength of the Lord. But it is here that his situation and really the trajectory of Israel was to change by God's providence. While Joseph continued to languish in prison, this pagan king, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, has a dream. And in this dream, we read that he is standing by the Nile River. He's on the banks of the Nile. Now, of course, the Nile is the most important feature of Egyptian geography. It is, and it was at that point, and still is, really, the primary source of agricultural production. Its waters bring life to an otherwise barren desert. And so, economically, socially, religiously, the river was important to the land of Egypt. The people lived by its ebb and flow. It was the source of Egyptian power and Egyptian life. And so, for the king of Egypt now to have this dream about the river, and, well, this was a big deal. I mean, his whole world and his whole power is wrapped up in that river. And so he reads, well, he has this dream that seems to threaten all of that. And so now the dream, it's very simple. Verse 2, uh, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, come up. And they stood up by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And then they, thin and ugly cows, ate up the seven attractive and plump cows. Now that's quite a picture that you get. Now after this, Pharaoh falls asleep again. He had woken up, he falls asleep, and then he dreams again. He dreams this time of seven ears of grain, plump and good, growing on one stalk. And then there are seven other thin, blighted ears. 
And again, like the first, the thin, blighted ears swallow up the plump ones. And then the Pharaoh awakes. Again, he realizes that he's had a dream. Now, at this point, uh, we should see that this dream clearly pertains to the economy of Egypt. And that's going to, of course, be explained later. Now, Pharaoh, Pharaoh is actually pretty aware of this. In fact, this is the very thing which disturbs him so much. Now, to understand famines, famines come and go. But because of the Nile River, Egypt was usually able to to bear through those sorts of things. They were not as affected by uh, famine as the rest of the world would be. This is, in fact, why Abraham, if you remember, this is why Abraham, back in chapter 12, went down to Egypt during a famine. Because rivers allow for irrigation and the continuation of food production, water for the animals, water for the crops. Where other parts of the world would lack rain, the river would provide. But that's not happening in this dream. The plenty of Egypt was being swallowed up by poverty. So much so that even the Nile River couldn't sustain it. And so if things are this bad in Egypt, imagine what they're like in other places. The picture that Pharaoh has in his dream is one of hopelessness. And so when he awakes from his dream, Pharaoh was troubled in his mind. Or more literally, he was troubled in his spirit. The Hebrew word is ruah. Spirit. He's troubled in his spirit. And so what he does is he calls together all his experts. He calls his magicians, his diviners, his wise men. He tells them the dream. But of course, no one can interpret it for him. No one knows what this is about. Now, Pharaoh understands that this was one, one dream. Uh, this is a point which Joseph will verify for him later. But he's not able to receive a satisfactory answer. He, he goes to all his experts, all the worldly wisdom, and none of them could answer. Now, interpretation of dreams, this was actually a, a very common uh, practice in Egyptian court. And yet, their way of knowing failed Miserably. Well, this is the sort of thing we would expect with worldly wisdom. They, they could not know. In this sense, Pharaoh was no different from the cupbearer and the baker, right? They, they, were, they were in prison and they couldn't get answers because they didn't have access. Here's the king of Egypt. He has all the resources of the world before him and he still can't get the answer. Surely Pharaoh saw the threat to his livelihood And so he's driven to despair, which is what we would expect in this situation. And it is again, it is here that the turnabout for Joseph begins in God's providence. Suddenly, or suddenly someone remembers one who had been long ago forgotten. Verse 9, then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. You see, the cupbearer had wronged two people. He had wronged Joseph. And he'd wronged his king, Pharaoh. He had turned his back on Joseph. He had forgotten all about him. And he had failed to share with his king Joseph's talents. But in God's providence, this was revealed at just the right time. 
And the cupbearer, in his, in his words, readily admits his guilt and his oversight. And so he recounts the story, verse 10, when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I having, each having a dream of its own interpretation. And a young Hebrew was there with a servant of the captain of the guard. He, and we told him, and he interpreted our dreams, each one coming according to its interpretation. I was restored to my office. The baker was hanged. And so the cupbearer provides a basic outline of the story. Joseph, this young Hebrew, he had interpreted the dreams. Each of them came to pass exactly as he said. And so this was just the man that Pharaoh needed to see. No one else could provide the answer. Perhaps this Hebrew prisoner could. And so verse 14 Joseph is sent for, and he's quickly brought in. And actually, in the Hebrew, there's a, almost a staccato style to the language. He's, he's rushed in, as it were. Get, get him in here right now. Like, get him in here yesterday. In, in, in a sense, this, this gives you something of the desperation which Pharaoh was feeling. The king could no longer wait, not a moment longer. And so Joseph is brought out of the pit. This is his, his prison. And he is, he is to be transformed from Joseph, the Hebrew slave, to Joseph, the Egyptian master. Now, it would not, of course, have been appropriate for Joseph to appear before the king in his prison rags. And so he's cleaned up. He's sha- his, head, his head is shaven. His, his beard is shaven according to Egyptian custom. He is given a change of clothes. And as soon as he's ready, Joseph is brought before the Pharaoh, who then says, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Pharaoh gets right down to business, doesn't he? The king is hopeful that based on the slave's speech with the two other officials who had been in prison, that perhaps he would be able to help him as well. Now notice something in terms of Joseph's response. He does not claim for himself any special powers or gifts. He does not presume to be able to give a favorable interpretation to the king. Rather, he says, verse 16, It is not in me... It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. You see, the Lord is the one who gives the dreams. And it is the Lord who gives the interpretation of them. This this was to be a work of the Lord. And so, therefore, God is to get the honor. And Pharaoh will receive a favorable, or rather, shalom. He will receive peace. He will receive a whole answer. It is God who will provide for Pharaoh what he needs. Pharaoh is anxious about his dream. He's anxious because a king in Egypt having dreams, this was significant. And a dream of the nature of this particular dream was frightening for him. But the king will be at rest. He will experience shalom. He will get the answer from God that is needed. And so starting in verse 17, Pharaoh begins to recite his dream. 
Though this time with some embellishment and commentary. You'll notice as we read it earlier that as Pharaoh speaks, he, he, he adds a little bit of embellishment, he adds a little bit of commentary to it. He, he speaks of the seven fat cows, he speaks of seven very ugly and thin ones, such has never been seen in Egypt. He adds a little bit of commentary there. And again, the, 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 the thin cows eat the fat cows. And, no, and he says, no, no one would ever know. I mean, you, know, you would never know that they had eaten anything. They were still as fat, and, or rather, they were still as thin and ugly as ever. Then he wakes, and then he dreams again. He dreams again and saw seven good, full ears of grain. And again, the seven blighted ones swallow up the good ones. And the king told his magicians, and he says, no one could explain them. No one understood the significance of the dream. And so, after hearing this, then, Joseph begins the interpretation. Look, starting at verse 25. And as he does so, you'll note, too, that he provides something of a framework. First of all, he points out that the dreams are one and the same. These are not two separate dreams, but in fact, one dream. They are, in essence, one dream. And second, God has revealed to the king what he's about to do. The events that have been made known to Pharaoh before they come to pass, this has come from the Lord. It is the Lord who is speaking here. And then he says this, there will be seven good years. These are the seven good cows and the seven good ears of grain. And then there will be seven years of severe famine. These are the seven sickly cows and the seven blighted ears of grain. So Joseph reiterates the dreams have come from God, and in so doing, that God's will has been revealed to Pharaoh. What Pharaoh needs to understand, and what you and I need to understand as well, is that it is God who rules the nations. God was pleased to work in this way. God rules and overrules kings. He overrules economies. He overrules lives. God is sovereign over all things. It is God who brings plenty, and it is God who would bring poverty. And so what is about to happen was by God's sovereign decree and for good. Here, Joseph elaborates on the interpretation starting in verse 29. There will be seven years of plenty in the land followed by seven years of famine which will consume the land. And so severe will this famine be, so horrible will the famine be, that those seven years of plenty when there was such an abundance will be completely and totally forgotten as if it had never happened at all. The people will remember what plenty is like. There would have been no doubt that this was to be a severe famine when it came. So horrible will it be that the abundance that had been enjoyed previously will not matter. It will be swallowed up and this, by suffering and hunger and want. This is bleak. Joseph then provides another interpretive principle here. And that is that of imminent fulfillment of them. 
Since God has given the dream by means of doubling, this meant that the thing was fixed by God and that He will bring it about quickly. Joseph himself had experience with this principle. His own dreams back in the land of Canaan and the dreams of the two officials who were imprisoned with him. The fulfillment will come quickly and it is sure God will do this. Which then would also indicate that the 14 year period we're talking about, the seven years of plenty and the seven years of want, they've already now begun. What is, what is to come to pass has started. And so they must act quickly. And so, since the time of plenty has, was already upon them, clearly Pharaoh needed to act. It is here that Joseph now goes beyond the king's initial request, and he offers up some unsolicited advice, which, by the way, is very dangerous. You don't go to the king and offer, hey, by the way, I've got some advice for you, king. Yeah, you're, you're a slave and a prisoner. But yeah, he does. He offers up this advice. Verse 33, Now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Now, of course, Joseph doesn't say, you know, hey, you know, put me in charge of this and I'll fix it all for you. He doesn't say that. He just says, Pharaoh, you need to find somebody who's discerning and wise and set him over the land. But since this thing is determined to happen, the king needed to make appropriate provisions. He needed a good administrator. And Joseph provides the qualifications for such a man who could be set over the land and help shepherd the nation through this. What will will really prove to be one of the most difficult times in the history of Egypt. And Joseph is taking quite a risk in making this suggestion. Notice that he advises that Pharaoh selected discerning and wise man. Now, Pharaoh has just learned that he didn't have any of those in the land. Remember all his experts he went to? Well, who do I have to choose from? He didn't didn't have any of those. It may also be something to the fact that Joseph is saying, now don't make that mistake twice. The ideal candidate will be able to discern the best course with wisdom. Further, the king was to appoint overseers, commissioners who could collect a tax from the people of one-fifth of what the land produced. And what is collected then is to be stored under the authority of the king king in these various cities so that when the famine came, there would be a place for the people to go and buy and eat. The food was to be reserved for the land so that the people may not starve, so that the land would not be ruined, they would be not literally cut off. Because what we're talking about is if nothing was to happen, everybody was going to die. This is how bad it was. The point is to preserve the land and to preserve the people. You need a good administrator who's going to be able to do this and ensure that this people live. The advice of Joseph is taken is seen as good in the eyes of Pharaoh and the servants as well. The king then asks this rhetorical question. Look at verse 40, uh, 38. rather. Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Now in asking that question, I think Pharaoh understood uh, what, what was said earlier. You know, you look around the land, do I have a wise and discerning man who can do this? 
Is there a man who has the Spirit of God? Hmm. No. The fact that Joseph could interpret dreams and then come up with an effective plan of action which makes Pharaoh understand that he has the Spirit of God. Remember, Joseph said, this interpretation is not from me, it's from God. Well, who else could have the Spirit of God? And so Joseph says, or rather Pharaoh says to Joseph, since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and you shall be all over my people. You shall order them as, uh, they shall order themselves as you command them. Only as regards the throne shall I be greater. Basically, Joseph, well, you, you had given, you know, Joseph had given, here's the criteria for the man. Well, it seems like you're the man for the job, Joseph. You're the right man for the job. And Pharaoh, it's just it's incredible. Here's this pagan king, right? He's acknowledging that Joseph has the spirit of God and that no one else in Egypt is like him. No one else has the spirit of God but this Yahweh follower, Joseph. There was no one who was qualified. He was the only one. He was the, this was the man of God's choosing. In effect, the only one who could meet the qualifications of the resume which Joseph had put forth was Joseph himself. And so the king of Egypt places Joseph in charge of this project. He, he was to take charge of the land. He was to be a second in command in all of the land, only behind Pharaoh. What a, what a turn of events for Joseph, isn't it? Here was this man who was a slave. He was a prisoner. And now he's essentially the king. It's incredible. He has gone from a deep humiliation to exaltation. He has literally been raised from the pit. And he's been raised to the place of kings and high authority. The one who had been faithful in small things. And caring for the house of Potiphar and caring for the needs of prisoners was placed over great things. Joseph was made head over the nation. But even that was only a small version of the great things that he would do. For he would be in charge of rescuing the nation of Israel from starvation. And in that sense, Joseph brought a temporal salvation. All who hunger and thirst could come, buy, and eat. They could come to Joseph. And in fact, Israel comes, buys, and eats without price. We'll, we'll look at that more later. But this is, this is a type and a shadow. This is a type and a shadow playing out of the eternal salvation which is bought, brought by Christ Jesus, whom we come and buy and eat without price. The exaltation of Joseph did not end with his new work outside of prison. Verse 42, he's given the king's signet ring. He's clothed in garments of fine linen and a gold chain was put around his neck. These are all common signs of Egyptian investiture. The king gives him the sign of kingly reign. And he clothes him as he would clothe the priests of Egypt. This is the term of the linen that's used here. Further, it says that he's made to ride in a second chariot, and those who pass were to bow the knee. 
These are all signs that Joseph is being installed into the second highest position in the land. No one but the king would possess more power than him. In fact, the king says to, says to Joseph, <coughs> he says, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one can lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Joseph is given absolute authority over the land. Nothing was to happen without Joseph's say so. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> he was commissioned by Pharaoh himself. <clears throat> and he carried the weight, the weight of, of Pharaoh's authority. The king then also Egyptianized his name. He called him Zaphonath Paneah, which means God speaks and lives. In gaining a new name, Joseph's new identity and position are signified. No longer is he the Hebrew slave, he is now the king's highest official. He's also given in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. Again, this is considered an honor to the Egyptians to be married into the priestly family, into such a prestigious and noble family. And the, the, this text also notes that he was 30. We entered into Pharaoh's service, which then means that he has now been in Egypt for over 13 years. He had been a prisoner and a slave for a long time. And now he's the second in charge. He travels through the land. And in the course of those seven bountiful years, he gathers the food. He stores them in cities. He stores the great abundance of grain. In fact, it says there was so much. It's like the sand of the sea. They had to stop counting it. There was so much that they gathered and stored. This is an unqualified abundance, which is stored according to the stockpiling strategy which Joseph had laid out. Before the end of the uh, before the end the year of the, the, before the year of the famine began, it also tells us that he had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh means forget. Ephraim means fruitful. <clears throat> and Joseph explains the significance of their names. <clears throat> Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh for he says, "God has made me forget all my hardship and my father's house." And Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land. Of my affliction. Now it should be also noted that these were Hebrew names. He he marries an Egyptian woman, but his children are named with Hebrew names. Typically, the custom in Israel was for the wife to name the children based on the circumstances of their birth. But here, Joseph does. He he <clears throat> names them based on his own circumstances. Though he had been brought into the place of honor in a pagan land, what's also being made clear to us, even in the naming of his children, is that Joseph is faithful to the Lord. He's not adopted pagan uh, gods. Well, after the seven years of plenty came to an end, then came the seven years of famine. This was just as Joseph had said. And not only was Egypt impacted, but all the nations were in famine. And there was only bread found in Egypt. And the people cried out, and they were directed to Joseph. Food would be found with him. And so Joseph was able to sell grain, and and people from all the nations came streaming to him for relief. And this sets the stage for what is going to come next, because Israel is going to come to his door for food also. Again, this is a type. 
This is a shadow of something greater, of a greater salvation. Joseph is bringing a temporal salvation. He's saving the nations from starving. All the nations are streaming to him for food. Jesus brings ultimate salvation. And all the nations can stream to him to be saved. Saved from eternal punishment for sin. This account of Joseph is a demonstration of the wisdom of God being greater than the wisdom of men. As we said before, the Lord rules and overrules the nations. He brings plenty, he brings want. In God's providence, it was intended that Joseph be in Egypt, that he be enslaved, that he be imprisoned, that he be raised up to be a master who would use great wisdom and would benefit all of the people. The story of Joseph prefigures the coming of Christ and his salvation. And this, this story illustrates something of God's kingdom because the only mediator between God and man is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the God-man, who mediates between sinful men and a holy God. In Christ Jesus and by His blood, our sins are atoned for. By faith in Him, we are adopted into the number and are given all the privileges of the sons of God. Jesus blesses us and provides us our most pressing need. Just as Joseph, in a a much smaller way, as a shadow of the things to come, he mediated for the world by providing them food. In that sense, too, the kingdom of God in which we are citizens is a blessing even to the nations, bringing the gospel to bear to fellow sinners. Even bringing at times temporal blessing. We are salt and light in this dark and rotting world. And, temporally, God was concerned both for the house of Jacob as well as the house of Pharaoh. In God's common grace, the sun shines and the rain falls and the righteous and the unrighteous alike. And in this case, the Lord was pleased to bless this pagan king in this temporal way in order to use him to accomplish his ultimate will in providing for the needs of his covenant people Ultimately, such that our Messiah would come, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's amazing. As we've gone through Genesis, we see this plan of salvation just rolling out, and we've seen um, what seem like threats to that, and yet God works it out beautifully. Sometimes blessings overflow even to the unbeliever. Which is to say that even our church can be a blessing to the community around us. Of course, this is not our main task. Our main task is to proclaim the gospel. And yet sometimes the blessings given to us overflow even to the lost around us. Joseph had no idea about his, what his, that his personal suffering would be used for, the, for good to bless the nations. And we don't know either how our own personal sufferings will impact other people around us. Might our tears today be turned into rejoicing tomorrow? But we can say this with confidence. The suffering of our Savior Jesus Christ was a blessing to all the nations. And are we not a part of all the nations? And so look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself, so that you may not grow weary 
or faint-hearted. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for the, the salvation you bring through Christ. We're thankful that we see that play out in your word. That all of scripture points us to the reality that you providentially rescued the nation of Israel from starving because you made your servant Joseph suffer for a season of life. That he had to endure prison. But this is all part of your sovereign plan so that redemption may come, not only to the nation of Israel, but all to all nations through our Savior Jesus. We thank you for your work how you make all things work together for good. And so we praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.